0: I'll be reading this morning from 2 Samuel chapter 24, beginning in verse 1. Second Samuel 24 1. Now again the anger of the Lord burned against Israel, and it incited David against them to say, Go, number Israel and Judah. And the king said to Joab, the commander of the army who was with him, Go about now through all the tribes of Israel from Dan to Beersheba, and register the people, that I may know the number of people. But Joab said to the king, Now may the Lord your God add to the people a hundred times as many as there are, while the eyes of my lord the king still see. But why does my lord the king delight in this thing? Nevertheless, the king's word prevailed against Joab, and against the commanders of the army. So Joab and the commanders of the army went out from the presence of the king to register the people of Israel. Let's pray. God, we again just thank you for all that you have revealed and recorded here for us. We know that it is for our good, that we would be instructed, taught of you, led in the truth, that we would know you and worship you in spirit and in truth. I pray, Lord, as we look at your word, that our hearts would be open to you, and that we would allow you to reveal yourself through your word to us as you are, that we would be those, God, who are not worshiping a God of our imagination, but all that you have revealed of yourself, the true God, and that you would be pleased to find in us those who truly seek you and worship you with all of our heart and in truth. In Christ's name, amen. Well, we're getting to the um, end of David's life now, the end of the book of 2 Samuel. And this is the last um, scenario, the last event in David's life, and it's not um, a good thing. He is numbering the people of God. Um, we don't know why he did it, and I have to confess to you that for really most of my life, I have heard and believed that David was violating a command of Scripture when he numbered the people. But in my study, um, I find no command in Scripture that says that you cannot number the people. And I have no commentaries that say that David violated a specific command in Scripture. But it is clear from this passage of Scripture that What he was doing, God didn't want him to do, and he knew God didn't want him to do it. And he did it anyway. But there is no chapter and verse that says you can't take a census. Why did he do it? Some people just like to number things. They like to count. I'm a counter. My wife has a master's degree in counting. Um, She counts everything. She probably knows every chair in this room, every ceiling tile. Um, I'm not quite that bad. While we were having our anniversary lunch together this week, I splurged and took her to a little Mexican restaurant there in Comfort. Um, <laughs> it's 32 years of marriage, you know, you got to recelebrate. celebrate And um, while she's talking and I'm focusing on her, I'm counting all the tables in the restaurant. And, <laughs> and then I'm doing the math of, you know, okay, there's, Ten tables inside this restaurant, a couple outside, and, you know, and there's probably three people on average sitting at each table, and they're probably spending on an average of $10 to $12 each, and so I'm doing the math of how much this restaurant's made, all while focused lovingly on my wife at this time. Some people are just counters. What's wrong with counting? Um, Brian said we had five kids that came to Christ this summer. This week in camp. Actually, it was much more than that. Um, at least 20 stood up at the campfire and said that they had received Christ this week. Praise God. Well, I've been counting all these years. And, and we're thankful that, that all these years of camp, 10 weeks of camp, um, we've had, had 100 minimum, 200 more likely kids coming to Christ every summer for the last 42 years. That's over 8,000 kids that have come to Christ. Pretty neat. I really was encouraged to get the gallows um, um, updates and all the people that came to Christ on that trip. Amazing. Praise God. But what does God have against numbering? I mean, David may have really... He's at the end of his life. He's about to pass the throne over to his son Solomon. And when David became king... When these, all the 12 tribes of Israel came to him, First Chronicles says that they were numbered. And so he knew exactly how many warriors were coming from each tribe at the beginning of his reign. There was no sin in that. And now at the end of his reign, he's numbering how many warriors he has. Men 20 years old and upwards. Those that are eligible for battle. And he's in trouble. Maybe he was just wanting his son Solomon to know what he was handing over to him. David knew the size of the army he had when he became king. Now he's letting Solomon know the size army he has. Maybe he's just wanting to reflect on the goodness of God. He's at the end of his reign, 40 years of God's faithfulness, and he knows what size it was at the beginning, and now maybe he's just kind of doing a tally, and he's saying, I've got this many men. God's given great increase, praise God. We aren't told why he numbered. We aren't told his motivation for numbering. We are told he wasn't supposed to do it. And it wasn't even a clear command in Scripture. And nonetheless, he is in big trouble. Now, 1 Chronicles says, Now the anger of the Lord burned against Israel, and he incited Satan. Against him. Literally, the Hebrew word that's often translated Satan is adversary, and that's why the Scripture calls the devil our adversary, because that's the literal word that's being used for him in the Old Testament. But I understand that every time that, the, that Satan appears in the Old Testament, the, the word adversary always has the definite article the in front of it with the exception of that occasion in 1 Chronicles 21, where David is, inciting, is being incited to number the people. And so some historians believe it wasn't the devil that was inciting David. The adversary was another nation, and that David is about to be attacked again. And so he's numbering his people, numbering the army in particular to see how many fighting men he has. Whether it was the devil or whether it was a nation, this we do know That even though God is sovereign and nobody debates that truth, the scripture is very clear that God tempts no one. And so God can use the devil, God can use a nation to accomplish his will. But it was not God inciting David to sin. Because God cannot and will not do that. David made his own choice. He was being provoked. Something was prompting him, something was inciting him, but he made his own choice. He didn't have to do this. He was not a robot. he, he, he uh, He had freedom of choice to obey God in this matter, as we'll see. Joab knew that this wasn't right and begged David not to do it. And even the commanders of the army were doing the same. So David resisted not only Joab, but the commanders of the army in verse 4, and he prevailed over him. He just said, I don't care. Now, he's acting unaccountably here. He has men in his life that are saying, don't do this, and he does it anyway. Probably the simplest and best explanation for why God did not want him to do this is that it became a matter of pride. And God didn't want David to be putting his trust and his pride in the size of an army. If you recall what we looked at last Sunday, the previous chapter, that Psalm there, not the previous chapter, but Psalm 22, where David is very eloquently saying, the Lord is my rock, my shield, my defender, my refuge. Well, if you believe that, why are you numbering your people? You see? And he did believe that. The Lord is my rock. But I want to know how big an army I have. And keep in mind, God has said, he said it to Joshua, he said it to Moses, he said it through the different prophets. David knew it to be true. God said, I am not constrained to deliver by many or by few. And God said that one of your soldiers were put to flight many of the enemy. One of your men will cause many to run for their lives. God doesn't need a big army. Israel's protection is not in the size of his army. This is why Israel was never to enter into foreign alliances, military alliances with other nations, because their trust was not in other nations. Their confidence and their strength was not in other armies. It was in God. God doesn't need an army to defend Israel. To this day, that's the case. Israel has an army. There's not a problem. Israel has always had an army. But when Israel thinks that its trust is in its military, it's in bad shape, just as we are. Our trust is in God. So they spend nine months and 20 days going throughout the entire territory of Israel numbering it, verse 8. So when they had gone about through the whole land that came to Jerusalem at the end of nine months and twenty days. Now, verse 9, And Joab gave the number of the registration of the people to the king. And there were in Israel 800,000 valiant men who drew the sword. And the men of Judah, 500,000 men. Actually, there were more. Joab lied. First Chronicles tells us that he numbered every man, 20 and older, except for the Benjamites and the Levites, two tribes he left out. He apparently knew that what David was going to do, take pride in the size of the army, and Joab says, I'm not going to give him the accurate count. Maybe Joab thought that if it was a smaller number, he'd be less likely to take pride in. We don't know what Joab's motivation was either, but he, he flat out disobeyed the king. Fourth time now that he's done that. Now I want to just, before moving on to the consequences of this, just, just focus again here on this truth that there was no clear command that David not number the people. And yet he knew clearly he wasn't supposed to do it. Sometimes we all do this. We, we'd say a legalist is a person who is always oriented to the letter of the law. And we could agree with that. Our orientation is not to be the law. And there is a sense, and I've said this many times, our orientation is not even the word of God. It is the living word of God, Jesus Christ. And if we stop short with the word of coming to Jesus, in that sense, we are legalists. Because our orientation is something other than Christ himself. Christ's orientation was the Father. Our orientation as Christians is to be the person of Jesus Christ. But it is the word of God through which the person is revealed. And so this is the the means that God uses to bring us into a personal relationship with himself, his word. So if a person is totally oriented to the word, to the law, we call them a legalist. Is it any less legalism to say, there is no verse in Scripture that says, I can't do this, therefore it is permitted? In my estimation, that is just as much a legalist. The person who says, I can't find chapter and verse that says, I can't, therefore I can. That too is legalism. Because the orientation, again, is something other than Christ. In who he is. And I believe there are many things in an an individual Christian's life where God will speak very clearly to us and say, This is not for you. And we say, Where is the chapter and verse? Or we say, But other Christians can do it. Why can't I? And we know with all our being, God is saying, No. He doesn't necessarily explain himself. Any more than he is explaining to David why he isn't supposed to take a census. He just says, and it is clear, and David knows it, and he violates it, and the consequences are going to be great. So David's heart, verse 10, he is feeling convicted. Over what he has done. Good for David. And I mean that sincerely. David's heart troubled him. And so David said to the Lord. I have sinned greatly. In what I have done. But now O Lord. Please take away the iniquity of your servant. For I have acted very foolishly. David numbered the people. Probably out of pride and ambition. And now he is. Remorseful and humble. He has not even heard what the consequences are yet. As far as he knows, there are no consequences. Doesn't matter. In the humility of his heart, he's convicted, and he recognizes that what he has done is not right before God. And he says, God, forgive me. Now it gets interesting. When David arose in the morning, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Gad, David's seer, saying, Go and speak to David. Thus the Lord says, I am offering three things. Choose for yourself one. So So Gad came to David and told him and said to him, This is your choice. I don't know any other place in Scripture where God's done this. I'm about to spank you. And you get your choice of the instruments that I'm going to use to thank you. Seven years of famine, which Chronicles says was three years, or flee three months from before your foes while they pursue you, or three days of pestilence. Wow, what a choice! I remember one time my dad said, "I don't know what I'd done," but he said go to my closet, and pick a belt, and go to your room, and kneel over your bed, and wait for me. Oh, my word. And so I went to his closet, and I think he had a men's clothing store full of belts in that closet. It just looked like there were belts everywhere. And as a little boy, I actually started to reach for one of those belts. And do what my dad told me. I just couldn't do it. And I put my hand. I, I, how can I do this? It, you know, I, I just couldn't bring myself to, to get the instrument of my death and, and, and walk back to the room. And so I, I left it hanging there. And I went back to my room and I draped myself over the bed, waiting for my dad. And my dad walked in and said, where's the belt? I, I, I lied. And I said, I couldn't find one. <laughs> and my dad said, well, that's not a problem. I have one. And he, he ripped it off. And he had this fantastic way. He could undo his belt with one hand and rip it off, grab it and make a loop all while it's still in the air, and then in one motion come down and start spanking you. When I was in junior high... They still spanked the boys, gave them licks, they would call it, and um, I, I worked as a librarian assistant one year and one hour um, each week, each day, and back in the book room behind the library is where they gave the licks to the boys. And, um, and if they broke a paddle on you, then you had the distinctive, this privilege of being able to go to shop class and make a new paddle to replace the one they broke on you. <laughs> And there were a bunch of paddles in there, all creative designs, Uh, unbelievable. You know, some of them looked like waffle irons, a raised square and a recessed square. It was amazing. One had holes in it, so less wind resistance when it came through. Another one had a hinge on it, so you got hit twice, pa-pa, when it went in. And so it was either an assistant principal or a coach that would hand out the licks, and And as I understand, they they would give the boys their choice. They would just just walk the boys by all the paddles and say, which one would you like? Just adding to the torture. One of my brothers was going to get spanked once by my dad, and my dad announced to him, you're getting six licks. So he called up his best friend and said, what should I do? And his best friend said, ask your dad if you can spread it out over three days. <laughs> so we did. Seven years of famine, three months of fleeing from your enemies, or three days of pestilence. I mean, really, who wants to make that choice? There, there's no good scenario here. And, and I, I imagine David was just undone. I really have to make this choice. And so he, he said, give me the pestilence. Because that is totally the hand of God. And maybe God will have some mercy. If he had had three months of being pursued by men, he says, Who's gonna know, who knows what will happen? if I fall into the hands of men. And even famine, David and the nation would have been dependent upon traders, merchants of corn from other nations to bring in the food. Who knows how much they would charge? Who knows what they would require of us? So he would be at the mercy of men. The Jewish rabbis believe that in David choosing the pestilence, he chose the one option of the three, where he would have the least likelihood of being personally preserved. If he'd chosen famine, the people could have said, well, famine's, yeah, good for you, because you're always going to have enough food. If he'd chosen to be chased by his enemies, he'd say, well, you're always going to have an army around you. But by choosing pestilence, it leveled the playing field. And David was probably more likely to suffer along with the people in choosing that option. So David said to Gad in verse 14, I am in great distress. Let us now fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercies are great, but do not let me fall into the hand of man. God versus man. That's how David saw the choice, and he chose God. But God is greater than man, and God can do more to us than what men can. Jesus said, don't fear men who can destroy the body, but you should fear God who can destroy the body and cast the soul into hell. God is greater than man. He can do more to us than what a man could do. But God is good. And David is trusting in the goodness and compassion of God. Whether we recognize it or not, we walk through life And as men and women created in the image of God, we have a choice to make. Man or God? Self or God? And if we understood, though God is big and awesome and to be feared, if we understood he was good, who would not willingly hand themselves over to him? Rather than live under the domination of other men and even of our own selves. God doesn't normally give us a choice when it comes to the consequences of our sin. I'm kind of glad he doesn't. But he does give choice. See, that's the difference here. He doesn't normally give choice of consequence. But he does give choice before we sin. There is always choice. And David did not have to number these people. Now the consequence is pretty grave. So the Lord sent a pestilence from Israel from morning until the appointed time. And 70,000 men of the people from Dan to Beersheba died. Wow. Innocent people. And I have to think that David is one more time greatly sobered and humbled. That our choices, as small and inconsequential as they seem, have grave, grave consequences. It's another reminder to me that we just don't understand the gravity of sin. I am a firm believer that, that not all sin is identical, but I'm also a firm believer that all sin has as its wages death. And there are none that don't bring death. We like to think that what we do privately that doesn't impact anybody else will impact nobody else. And we have believed a lie. Where in the Bible does it say there is such a thing as a private sin that impacts no one else? The representation the Scripture makes of sin is that it always impacts not only us, but everyone we are in relationship with. Even if they never find out what we're doing, it will still impact them. 70,000 men die in Israel because of David's sin. So David said in verse 17, when he saw the angel of the Lord that was striking down the people, he said, behold, it is I who have sinned. It is I who have done wrong. But these sheep, what have they done? Please let your hand be against me and against my father's house. The angel that was striking down the people, at least to David, was visible. Whether anybody else could see the angel, we're not sure. We know that Aruna, because this angel came right up to the edge of Jerusalem. Aruna's property is on the other side of the northern wall at this time. Jerusalem had not expanded to take in Aruna's property yet. And so it's just across the northern wall of Jerusalem. And the angel has come. And the angel is about to destroy Jerusalem. And God stops the angel and says, It is enough. Now relax your hand. And the angel of the Lord was by the threshing floor of Aruna the Jebusite. This is not an Israelite. Chronicles tells us that Aruna and his sons could see the angel. And they were hiding from their lives. Can you imagine? An angel standing there with a draw, sword drawn. And, and people are dying. It looked like plague. And again, this is another thing. The, the judgment of God, the discipline of God upon a Christian or upon a nation, you can always look at it and see a cause other than God. If it had been famine, people could have said, well, it's just global warming. That's what you've got. Too much fossil fuels being burned. Okay. Right? If it had been war... Well, that's what you get when you're living in as an imperialist society. You should expect that people are going to war against you, right? Pestilence, well, you should have gotten your immunizations, and this wouldn't have happened. And we can always come up with an explanation for the discipline of God. But of the three that David faced, the one that was hardest to explain, to explain away as just being the normal events of living in a fallen world, pestilence would have been the hardest. Because it started on a fixed day and it stopped at a fixed day. And it only impacted Israel itself. What pestilence does that? So there's no denying this had to be God. We live in that same time. Mankind is our... We have not changed. Christian and unbeliever alike. Bad things happen. And I don't think we should, we should jump to a spiritual conclusion too quickly and, and be, and be you know, undiscerning But typically we go to the other extreme and we never see the providential hand of God and what God is doing in history. And this is the judgment of God. And God has mercy, but the angel is still standing there in full view. And David says, God, strike me and my family, not these innocent sheep. And then God says to David through Gad, the prophet... Go up, verse 18, erect an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Aruna the Jebusite. And David went up according to the command of the Lord. And Aruna looked down and saw the king and his servants crossing over toward him. And Aruna went out and bowed his face to the ground before the king. Remember these angels standing there the whole time. Then Aruna said, "Why has the Lord, my Lord the king, come to his servant?" And David said, "To buy the threshing floor from you in order to build an altar to the Lord that the plague may be held back from the people." And Aruna said to David, "Let my Lord the King take and offer up what is good in his sight. Look the oxen for the burnt offering, the threshing sledges, and the yokes of the oxen for the wood. Take it all, just yours. Everything, O king. O oh, King Aruna gives to the king, and Aruna said to the king, May the Lord your God accept you. However, the king said to Aruna, No, but I will surely buy it from you for a price, for I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God, which costs me nothing. So David bought the threshing floor and the oxen for fifty shekels of silver. And we're told in Chronicles, not only did he buy that small piece of land with the oxen and and threshing um, instruments, but he also bought the, the larger property, which cost him quite a bit of gold. And on that larger property is where Solomon's temple will be built. And David built there an altar to the Lord and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. Thus the Lord was moved by entreaty for the land, and the plague was held back from Israel. 70,000 men died because of a sin not specifically mentioned in Scripture and yet David knew he was in violation of all that God wanted for him. And then he goes out to offer sacrifices to God and Aruna, in his generosity just says, I give it to you. And David says, it doesn't work that way. I will not I cannot offer to God that which costs me nothing. It is a tremendous principle. And it's amazing that this whole book of 2 Samuel ends with that statement. I will not offer to God that which costs me nothing. It's a contradiction in terms to call it a sacrifice when there's no cost. And David goes, how is that worship? Worship always involves cost? Always. We come together on a Sunday morning to worship God. Where's the cost? Pretty comfortable chairs. Air conditioning. Oftentimes too cold, but you know, it's not that bad. We're not dying. Better that than too hot. Where's the cost? And we walk out the door. Did we worship? The Scripture knows nothing about worship that involves no cost. So maybe we should get up at 4 in the morning and come to church and be here by 5. And take away all the pews and just, you know, kneel on glass. Then we'd be worshiping, right? No. Romans 12, one. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies to God as living And holy sacrifices, which is your spiritual service of worship. The worship, the cost for you and I today, Christ has paid the cost of dying for our sin. There's nothing we can do to pay for our sin. But we worship God today in the understanding, the only thing that I can give to him is myself. This is why Jesus says, If you're not prepared to take up your cross, deny yourself, and come after me, you're not worthy of me. Worship today for those who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ is simply the yielding without reservation of our lives to him. And this is why we gather. One of the reasons we gather on Sunday morning. But it's not just to be a Sunday morning event, but every day of our lives. Worship can be the constant expression of our lives as we live, yielded to him. It's challenging when we see that in other people. Patsy and I have friends that are well past retirement, and they have moved to Pakistan to teach as Christians in a university there, and they're having to learn the language at their age. They're both in their early 70s now, and they're learning a new language, developing new courses. They have been terribly sick, you know, recently, and, and, and they're not complaining. And I just go, amazing. They're going to be coming through this summer to visit us. I just can't wait to see them. But I've, I told them in my last email, I can't tell you how challenged I am. Because we live in a very coddled type of Christianity. Everything is what makes us happy, what puts us at ease, what makes life pleasant. And God would never require anything of us that's going to make life difficult. Really. How is it worship if it costs me nothing? If I'm not prepared to yield my life to him who gave himself for me. He yielded up his life for me, but I won't yield my life to him. How is that worship? It isn't. It's a mockery of what what he gave his life to us for. There is a sense in which we trample underfoot the blood of Christ when we want to appropriate the forgiveness, but we will not yield to him in a faith obedience. And David has sinned against God, and now he's recognizing, I have to yield to him, and I cannot, I will not offer to him that which costs me nothing. We lay it all before God, it's his life. It is not ours. So we wake up in the morning and say, here I am, oh God. It is your life. Live your life in me. Receive me as an offering itself for your glory, for your namesake. And God is good. There are never any regrets. The first, next verse there in Romans twelve two says, the will of God, you will prove what the will of God is as you live your life, yield it to him. You will become proof of God's will which is good, acceptable, and perfect. Not necessarily easy. So as I think back over the life of David, end-of-life truths, these are just a few, many more that we could think of. This book does not close with David's death. That's in the next chapter, of first chapter of First Kings. But these are the things that we can see throughout First and 2 Samuel as we've looked at the life of David. Number one, it's not in any particular order here, but we saw just in this chapter, disobedience to the very end, David is having reinforced to him. Disobedience is always costly. Number two, we are to always walk in faith and obedience. And that need's never going to change. We don't live off of our history. We don't live complacently. All the days of our life are days of faith, days of faithful obedience to Christ. Number three, God is to be feared and to obeyed, but he is also to be loved. And he is a good God. He is good and compassionate. Number four, forgiveness in response to repentance is always available. God takes back the broken and contrite. How many times David said, I blew it, I blew it, I blew it again, forgive me again. I mean, read the Psalms. David is saying over and over again. And God never tires of taking him back. What a good God he is. All of our sin has been paid for through the blood of Jesus. And you will never sin to any degree or any number of times that God finally just washes his hands of you. It's never going to happen constantly receives us back to himself. The broken and contrite heart he does not despise. He is our rock and our refuge. Relationship with him is our highest good and privilege. God is our rock. Again, it's not even the history of what he has done, but God himself is our rock. It's not our finances. It's not the strength. It's not, it's not supposed Um, Health is is God himself is our work. Worship is costly. Disobedience is more costly. Sanctification is a lifelong process of yielding to God and living in dependence upon him. The Old Testament doesn't use the terminology of the New Testament that a man was saved. We know that, but it does use the same terminology of declared righteous. That's the same thing as saying he was saved. Abraham was declared righteous. I was declared righteous. That didn't make it perfect. And we see in David, as we see with all of our lives, a man who continued to grow, continued to sin, continued to see the faithfulness of God. Sanctification is a lifelong process. God's goal and agenda is far beyond the here and now. It is eternal. It is Christ-likeness. It is for us to reign with Him in glory. It's not just about David having a happy life. God had much more in mind for David than that. And much more in mind for you and me. And then finally, God very clearly shows us in the life of David that he uses fallen men greatly. But our eyes are not on the men, but on the one who is the author and the perfecter of our faith, the Lord Jesus Christ. Aren't you glad God includes in Scripture with all of these heroes of the faith the blemishes on their lives. Thank the Lord. That's so that we don't worship the men, but we worship Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. I'll close this in prayer.